Welcome to Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, translated by Henry Beveridge. We are continuing our reading in Book 2, Chapter 7, Section 12. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, So also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, which we hope you will find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14, 6. Section 12. The third use of the law, being also the principal use, and more closely connected with its proper end, has respect to believers in whose hearts the Spirit of God already flourishes and reigns. For although the law is written and engraven on their hearts by the finger of God, that is, although they are so influenced and actuated by the Spirit that they desire to obey God, there are two ways in which they still profit in the law for it is the best instrument for enabling them daily to learn with greater truth and certainty what that will of the Lord is which they aspire to follow, and to confirm them in this knowledge. Just as a servant who desires with all his soul to approve himself to his master must still observe, and be careful to ascertain his master's dispositions, that he may comport himself in accommodation to them. Let none of us deem ourselves exempt from this necessity, for none have as yet attained to such a degree of wisdom as that they may not, by the daily instruction of the law, advance to a purer knowledge of the divine will. Then, because we need not doctrine merely, but exhortation also, the servant of God will derive this further advantage from the law. By frequently meditating upon it, he will be excited to obedience, and confirmed in it, and so drawn away from the slippery paths of sin. In this way must the saints press onward, since, however, great the alacrity with which under the Spirit they hasten toward righteousness, they are retarded by the sluggishness of the flesh, and make less progress than they ought. The law acts like a whip to the flesh, urging it on as men do a lazy, sluggish ass. Even in the case of a spiritual man, inasmuch as he is still burdened with the weight of the flesh, the law is a constant stimulus, pricking him forward when he would indulge in sloth. David had this use in view when he pronounced this high eulogium on the law, quote, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes, unquote. Psalm 19, verses 7 and 8. Again, quote, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path, unquote. Psalm 119, verse 105. The whole psalm abounds in passages to the same effect. Such passages are not inconsistent with those of Paul, which show not the utility of the law to the regenerate, but what it is able of itself to bestow. The object of the psalmist is to celebrate the advantages which the Lord, by means of his law, bestows on those whom he inwardly inspires with a love of obedience, and he adverts not to the mere precepts, but also to the promise annexed to them, which alone makes that sweet which in itself is bitter. For what is less attractive than the law, when, by its demands and threatenings, it overawes the soul, and fills it with terror? David specially shows that in the law he saw the mediator, without whom it gives no pleasure or delight. Section 13 Some skillful persons, from not attending to this, boldly discard the whole law of Moses, and do away with both its tables, imaging it unchristian to adhere to a doctrine which contains the administration of death. Far from our thoughts be this profane notion. Moses has admirably shown that the law, which can produce nothing but death and sinners, ought to have a better and more excellent effect upon the righteous. When about to die, he thus addressed the people, quote, Set your hearts upon all the words which I testify among you this day, which ye shall command your children to observe to do. 
all the words of this law, for it is not a vain thing for you, because it is your life. Unquote. Deuteronomy 32 verses 46 and 47. If it cannot be denied that it contains a perfect pattern of righteousness, then, unless we ought not to have any proper rule of life, it must be impious to discard it. There are not various rules of life, but one perpetual and inflexible rule. And therefore, when David describes the righteous as spending their whole lives in meditating on the law, Psalm 1, verse 2, we must not confine to a single age an employment which is most appropriate to all ages, even to the end of the world. Nor are we to be deterred or to shun its instructions, because the holiness which it prescribes is stricter than we are able to render, so long as we bear about the prison of the body. It does not now perform toward us the part of a hard taskmaster, who will not be satisfied without full payment, but, in the perfection to which it exhorts us, points out the goal at which, during the whole course of our lives, it is not less our interest than our duty to aim. It is well if we thus press onward. Our whole life is a race, and after we have finished our course, the Lord will enable us to reach that goal to which, at present, we can only aspire in wish. Section 14 since, in regard to believers, the law has the force of exhortation not to bind their consciences with a curse, but by urging them from time to time to shake off sluggishness and chastise imperfection, many, when they would express this exemption from the curse, say that in regard to believers the law, I still mean the moral law, is abrogated. Not that the things which it enjoins are no longer right to be observed, but only that it is not to believers what it formerly was. In other words, that it does not, by terrifying and confounding their consciences, condemn and destroy. It is certainly true that Paul shows in clear terms that there is such an abrogation of the law, and that the same was preached by our Lord appears from this, that he would not have refuted the opinion of his destroying the law if it had not been prevalent among the Jews. Since such an opinion could not have arisen at random without some pretext, there is reason to presume that it originated in a false interpretation of his doctrine, in the same way in which all errors generally arise from a perversion of the truth. But lest we should stumble against the same stone, let us distinguish accurately between what has been abrogated in the law and what still remains in force. When the Lord declares that he came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill, Matthew 5, verse 17, that until heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle shall remain unfulfilled. He shows that his advent was not to derogate in any degree from the observance of the law. And justly, since the very end of his coming was to remedy the transgression of the law. Therefore, the doctrine of the law has not been infringed by Christ, but remains that by teaching, admonishing, rebuking, and correcting, it may fit and prepare us for every good work. Section 15. What Paul says as to the abrogation of the law evidently applies not to the law itself, but merely to its power of constraining the conscience. For the law not only teaches, but also imperiously demands. If obedience is not yielded, nay, if it is omitted in any degree, it thunders forth its curse. For this reason, the Apostle says that, quote, As many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Unquote. Galatians 3, verse 10, and Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. Those he describes as under the works of the law, who do not place righteousness in that forgiveness of sins by which we are freed from the rigor of the law. He therefore shows that we must be freed from the fetters of law, if we would not perish miserably under them. But what fetters? Those of rigid and austere exaction, which remits not one iota of the demand, and leaves no transgression unpunished. To redeem us from this curse, Christ was made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree, Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, compared with Galatians 3, verse 13, and chapter 4, verse 4. In the following chapter, indeed, he says that, quote, Christ was made under the law, in order that he might redeem those who are under the law, unquote. But the meaning is the same. For he immediately adds, quote, that we might receive the adoption of sons, unquote. What does this mean? 
that we might not be, all our lifetime, subject to bondage, having our consciences oppressed with the fear of death. Meanwhile, it must ever remain in indubitable truth that the law has lost none of its authority, but must always receive from us the same respect and obedience. Section 16. The case of ceremonies is different, these having been abrogated not in effect, but in use only. Though Christ, by his advent, put an end to their use, so far is this from derogating from their sacredness, that it rather commends and illustrates it. For as these ceremonies would have given nothing to God's ancient people but empty show, if the power of Christ's death and resurrection had not been prefigured by them, so, if the use of them had not ceased, it would, in the present day, be impossible to understand for what purpose they were instituted. Accordingly, Paul, in order to prove that the observance of them was not only superfluous, but pernicious also, says that they, quote, are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ, unquote. Colossians 2, verse 17. We see, therefore, that the truth is made clearer by their abolition than if Christ, who has been openly manifested, were still figured by them as at a distance and as under a veil. By the death of Christ, the veil of the temple was rent in twain, the living and express image of heavenly things which had begun to be dimly shadowed forth being now brought fully into view, as is described by the author of the epistle to the Hebrews. Hebrews 10, verse 1. To the same effect, our Savior declares that, quote, The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. Unquote. Luke 16, verse 16. Not that the Holy Fathers were left without the preaching of the hope of salvation and eternal life, but because they only saw at a distance, and under a shadow, what we now behold in full light. Why behoved the church to ascend higher than these elements is explained by John the Baptist when he says, quote, The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Unquote. John 1, verse 17. For though it is true that expiation was promised in the ancient sacrifices, and the Ark of the Covenant was a sure pledge of the paternal favor of God, the whole would have been illusory had it not been founded on the grace of Christ, wherein true and eternal stability is found. It must be held as a fixed point, that though legal rights cease to be observed, their end serves to show more clearly how great their utility was before the advent of Christ, who, while he abolished the use, sealed their force and effect by his death. Section 17 There is a little more difficulty in the following passage of Paul. Quote, you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, Unquote. etc., Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. He seems to extend the abolition of the law considerably farther, as if we had nothing to do with its injunctions. Some err in interpreting this simply of the moral law as implying the abolition not of its injunctions, but of its inexorable rigor. Others, examining Paul's words more carefully, see that they properly apply to the ceremonial law, and show that Paul repeatedly uses the term ordinance in this sense. He thus writes to the Ephesians, quote, He is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man. Unquote. Ephesians 2, verse 14. There can be no doubt that he is there treating of ceremonies as he speaks of, quote, the middle wall of partition, unquote, which separated Jews and Gentiles. I therefore hold that the former view is erroneous, but at the same time it does not appear to me that the latter comes fully up to the apostles' meaning, for I cannot admit that the two passages are perfectly parallel. As his object was to assure the Ephesians that they were admitted to fellowship with the Jews, he tells them that the obstacle which formerly stood in the way was removed. This obstacle was in the ceremonies, for the rites of ablution and sacrifice by which the Jews were consecrated to the Lord separated them from the Gentiles. But who sees not that, in the epistle to the Colossians, a sublimer mystery is adverted to? No doubt, a question is raised there as to the Mosaic observances to which false apostles were endeavoring to bind the Christian people. 
but as in the epistle to the Galatians, he takes a higher view of this controversy, and in a manner traces it to its fountains, so he does in this passage also. For if the only thing considered in rites is the necessity of observing them, of what use was it to call it a handwriting which was contrary to us? Besides, how could the bringing in of it be set down as almost the whole sum of redemption? Wherefore, the very nature of the case clearly shows that reference is here made to something more internal. I cannot doubt that I have ascertained the genuine interpretation, provided I am permitted to assume what Augustine has somewhere most truly affirmed, nay, derived from the very words of the Apostle, viz., that in the Jewish ceremonies there was more a confession than an expiation of sins. For what more was done in sacrifice by those who substituted purifications instead of themselves than to confess that they were conscious of deserving death? What did these purifications testify but that they themselves were impure? By these means, therefore, the handwriting both of their guilt and impurity was ever and anon renewed. But the attestation of these things was not the removal of them. Wherefore, the Apostle says that Christ is, quote, the mediator of the New Testament, by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, unquote. Hebrews 9, verse 15. Justly, therefore, does the Apostle describe these handwritings as against the worshippers, and contrary to them, since by means of them their impurity and condemnation were openly sealed. There is nothing contrary to this in the fact that they were partakers of the same grace with ourselves. This they obtained through Christ, and not through the ceremonies which the Apostle there contrasts with Christ, showing that by the continued use of them the glory of Christ was obscured. We perceive how ceremonies, considered in themselves, are elegantly and appositely termed handwritings and, contrary to the salvation of man, inasmuch as they were a kind of formal instruments which attested his liability. On the other hand, when false apostles wished to bind them on the Christian church, Paul, entering more deeply into their signification, with good reason, warned the Colossians how seriously they would relapse if they allowed a yoke to be in that way imposed upon them. By so doing, they, at the same time, deprived themselves of all benefit from Christ, who, by his eternal sacrifice once offered, had abolished those daily sacrifices, which were indeed powerful to attest sin, but could do nothing to destroy it. Chapter 8. Exposition of the Moral Law. There are 58 sections. Section 1. I believe it will not be out of place here to introduce the Ten Commandments of the Law, and give a brief exposition of them. In this way it will be made more clear that the worship which God originally prescribed is still in force, a point to which I have already adverted. And then a second point will be confirmed, viz., that the Jews not only learned from the law wherein true piety consisted, but from feeling their inability to observe it were overawed by the fear of judgment and so drawn, even against their will, towards the Mediator. In giving a summary of what constitutes the true knowledge of God, we show that we cannot form any just conception of the character of God without feeling overawed by His Majesty and bound to do Him service. In regard to the knowledge of ourselves, we showed that it principally consists in renouncing all idea of our own strength and divesting ourselves of all confidence in our own righteousness, while, on the other hand, under a full consciousness of our wants, we learn true humility and self-abasement. Both of these the Lord accomplishes by His law. First, when in assertion of the right which He has to our obedience, He calls us to reverence His majesty, and prescribes the conduct by which this reverence is manifested. And, secondly, when, by promulgating the rule of his justice, a rule to the rectitude of which our nature, from being depraved and perverted, is continually opposed, and to the perfection of which our ability from its infirmity and nervelessness for good is far from being able to attain, he charges us both with impotence and unrighteousness. Moreover, the very things contained in the two tables are, in a manner, dictated to us by that internal law which, as has been already said, is in a manner written and stamped on every heart. For conscience, instead of allowing us to stifle our perceptions and sleep on without interruption, acts as an inward witness and monitor, reminds us of what we owe to God, points out the distinction between good and evil, and thereby convicts us of departure from duty. 
But man, being immured in the darkness of error, is scarcely able by means of that natural law to form any tolerable idea of the worship which is acceptable to God. At all events, he is very far from forming any correct knowledge of it. In addition to this, he is so swollen with arrogance and ambition, and so blinded with self-love, that he is unable to survey, and, as it were, descend into himself, that he may so learn to humble and abase himself, and confess his misery. Therefore, as a necessary remedy both for our dullness and our contumacy, the Lord has given us his written law, which, by its sure attestations, removes the obscurity of the law of nature, and also, by shaking off our lethargy, makes a more lively and permanent impression on our minds. Section 2. It is now easy to understand the doctrine of the law of these, that God, as our Creator, is entitled to be regarded by us as a Father and a Master, and should, accordingly, receive from us fear, love, reverence, and glory. Nay, that we are not our own to follow whatever course passion dictates, but are bound to obey Him implicitly, and to acquiesce entirely in His good pleasure. Again, the law teaches that justice and rectitude are a delight, injustice an abomination to him, and therefore, as we would not with impious ingratitude revolt from our Maker, our whole life must be spent in the cultivation of righteousness. For if we manifest becoming reverence only when we prefer his will to our own, it follows that the only legitimate service to him is the practice of justice, purity, and holiness. Nor can we plead as an excuse that we want the power, and like debtors, whose means are exhausted, are unable to pay. We cannot be permitted to measure the glory of God by our ability. Whatever we may be, he ever remains like himself, the friend of righteousness, the enemy of unrighteousness, and whatever his demands from us may be, as he can only require what is right, we are necessarily under a natural obligation to obey. Our inability to do so is our own fault. If lust, in which sin has its dominion, so enthralls us that we are not free to obey our Father, there is no ground for pleading necessity as a defense, since this evil necessity is within and must be imputed to ourselves. Section 3. When, under the guidance of the law, we have advanced thus far, we must, under the same guidance, proceed to descend into ourselves. In this way we at length arrive at two results. First, contrasting our conduct with the righteousness of the law, we see how very far it is from being in accordance with the will of God, and, therefore, how unworthy we are of holding our place among his creatures, far less of being accounted his sons. And, secondly, taking a survey of our powers, we see that they are not only unequal to fulfill the law, but are altogether null. The necessary consequence must be to produce distrust of our own ability, and also anxiety and trepidation of mind. Conscience cannot feel the burden of its guilt without forthwith turning to the judgment of God, while the view of this judgment cannot fail to excite a dread of death. In like manner, the proofs of our utter powerlessness must instantly beget despair of our own strength. Both feelings are productive of humility and abasement, and hence the sinner, terrified at the prospect of eternal death, which he sees justly impending over him for his iniquities, turns to the mercy of God as the only haven of safety. Feeling his utter inability to pay what he owes to the law, and thus despairing of himself, he bethinks him of applying and looking to some other quarter for help. Section 4 but the Lord does not count it enough to inspire a reverence for his justice, to imbue our hearts with love to himself, and at the same time, with hatred to iniquity, he has added promises and threatenings. The eye of our mind being too dim to be attracted by the mere beauty of goodness, our most merciful Father has been pleased, in his great indulgence, to allure us to love and long after it by the hope of reward. He accordingly declares that rewards for virtue are treasured up with him, that none who yield obedience to his commands will labor in vain. On the other hand, he proclaims not only that iniquity is hateful in his sight, but that it will not escape with impunity, because he will be the avenger of his insulted majesty. That he may encourage us in every way, he promises present blessings, as well as eternal felicity, to the obedience of those who shall have kept his commands, while he threatens transgressors with present suffering, as well as the punishment of eternal death. 
the promise, quote, Ye shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them, unquote. Leviticus 18, verse 5, and, corresponding to this, the threatening, quote, The soul that sinneth, it shall die, unquote. Ezekiel 18, verses 4 and 20, doubtless point to a future life and death, both without end. But though in every passage where the favor or anger of God is mentioned, the former comprehends eternity of life, and the latter eternal destruction. The law, at the same time, enumerates a long catalog of present blessings and curses. Leviticus 26, verse 4, Deuteronomy 28, verse 1. The threatenings attest the spotless purity of God, which cannot bear iniquity, while the promises attest at once His infinite love of righteousness, which He cannot leave unrewarded, and His wondrous kindness. Being bound to do Him homage with all that we have, He is perfectly entitled to demand everything which He requires of us as a debt, and as a debt the payment is unworthy of reward. He therefore foregoes His right when he holds forth reward for services which are not offered spontaneously as if they were not due. The amount of these services in themselves has been partly described and will appear more clearly in its own place. For the present, it is enough to remember that the promises of the law are no mean commendation of righteousness, as they show how much God is pleased with the observance of them, while the threatenings denounced are intended to produce a greater abhorrence of unrighteousness, lest the sinner should indulge in the blandishments of vice, and forget the judgment which the divine lawgiver has prepared for him. Section 5 the Lord, in delivering a perfect rule of righteousness, has reduced it in all its parts to his mere will, and in this way has shown that there is nothing more acceptable to him than obedience. There is the more necessity for attending to this, because the human mind, in its wantonness, is ever and anon inventing different modes of worship as a means of gaining his favor. This irreligious affectation of religion being innate in the human mind has betrayed itself in every age, and is still doing so, men always longing to devise some method of procuring righteousness without any sanction from the word of God. Hence, in those observances which are generally regarded as good works, the precepts of the law occupy a narrow space, almost the whole being usurped by this endless host of human inventions. But was not this the very license which Moses meant to curb when, after the promulgation of the law, he thus addressed the people? Quote, Observe and hear all these words which I command thee, that it may go well with thee, and with thy children after thee forever, when thou doest that which is good and right in the sight of the Lord thy God. Unquote. Quote, what things soever I command you, observe to do it. Thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish from it. Unquote. Deuteronomy 12, verses 28 through 32. Previously, after asking, quote, What nation is there so great that hath statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law, which I set before you this day, unquote, he had added, quote, Only take heed to thyself, and keep thy soul diligently, lest thou forget the things which thine eyes have seen, and lest they depart from thy heart all the days of thy life. Unquote. Deuteronomy 4, verses 8 and 9. God, foreseeing that the Israelites would not rest, but after receiving the law would unless sternly prohibited give birth to new kinds of righteousness, declares that the law comprehended a perfect righteousness. This ought to have been a most powerful restraint, and yet they desisted not from the presumptuous course so strongly prohibited. How do we act? We are certainly under the same obligation as they were, for there cannot be a doubt that the claim of absolute perfection which God made for his law is perpetually in force. Not contented with it, however, we labor prodigiously in feigning and coining an endless variety of good works one after another. The best cure for this vice would be a constant and deeply seated conviction that the law was given from heaven to teach us a perfect righteousness, that the only righteousness so taught is that which the divine will expressly enjoins and that it is therefore vain to attempt by new forms of worship to gain the favor of God whose true worship consists in obedience alone, or rather, that to go a-wandering after good works which are not prescribed by the law of God is an intolerable violation of true and divine righteousness. Most truly does Augustine say in one place that the obedience which is rendered to God is the parent and guardian, and another that it is the source of all the virtues. 
Section 6. After we shall have expounded the divine law, which has been previously said of its office and use, will be understood more easily and with greater benefit. But before we proceed to the consideration of each separate commandment, it will be proper to take a general survey of the whole. At the outset, it was proved that in the law, human life is instructed not merely in outward decency, but in inward spiritual righteousness. Though none can deny this, yet very few duly attend to it, because they do not consider the lawgiver, by whose character that of the law must also be determined. Should a king issue an edict prohibiting murder, adultery, and theft, the penalty, I admit, will not be incurred by the man who has only felt a longing in his mind after these vices, but has not actually committed them. The reason is that a human lawgiver does not extend his care beyond outward order, and therefore his injunctions are not violated without outward acts. But God, whose eye nothing escapes, and who regards not the outward appearance so much as purity of heart, under the prohibition of murder, adultery, and theft, includes wrath, hatred, lust, covetousness, and all other things of a similar nature. Being a spiritual lawgiver, he speaks to the soul not less than the body. The murder which the soul commits is wrath and hatred, the theft, covetousness, and avarice, and the adultery, lust. It may be alleged that human laws have respect to intentions and wishes, and not fortuitous events. I admit this, but then these must manifest themselves externally. They consider the animus with which the act was done, but do not scrutinize the secret thoughts. Accordingly, their demand is satisfied when the hand merely refrains from transgression. On the contrary, the law of heaven being enacted for our minds, the first thing necessary to a due observance of the law is to put them under restraint. But the generality of men, even while they are most anxious to conceal their disregard of the law, only frame their hands and feet and other parts of their body to some kind of observance, but in the meanwhile keep the heart utterly estranged from everything like obedience. They think it enough to have carefully concealed from man what they are doing in the sight of God. Hearing the commandments, quote, Thou shalt not kill, unquote, quote, Thou shalt not commit adultery, unquote, quote, Thou shalt not steal, unquote. They do not unsheath their sword for slaughter, nor defile their bodies with harlots, nor put forth their hands to other men's goods. So far, well. But with their whole soul, they breathe out slaughter, boil with lust, cast a greedy eye at their neighbor's property, and in wish devour it. Here the principal thing which the law requires is wanting. Whence then this gross stupidity, but just because they lose sight of a lawgiver and form an idea of righteousness in accordance with their own disposition? Against this, Paul strenuously protests when he declares that the, quote, law is spiritual, unquote. Romans 7, verse 14 intimating that it not only demands the homage of the soul and mind and will, but requires an angelic purity which, purified from all filthiness of the flesh, savors only of the spirit. Section 7. In saying that this is the meaning of the law, we are not introducing a new interpretation of our own. We are following Christ, the best interpreter of the law. Matthew 5, verses 22, 28, and 44. The Pharisees, having instilled into the people the erroneous idea that the law was fulfilled by everyone who did not, in external act, do anything against the law, he pronounces this a most dangerous delusion, and declares that an immodest look is adultery, and that hatred of a brother is murder. Quote, Whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Unquote. Whosoever by whispering or murmuring gives indication of being offended, quote, shall be in danger of the council, unquote. Whosoever by reproaches and evil speaking gives way to open anger, quote, shall be in danger of hell fire, unquote. Those who have not perceived this have pretended that Christ was only a second of Moses, the giver of an evangelical to supply the deficiency of the Mosaic law. Hence the common axiom as to the perfection of the evangelical law and its great superiority to that of Moses. This idea is in many ways most pernicious, for it will appear from Moses himself when we come to give a summary of his precepts that great indignity is thus done to the divine law. It certainly insinuates that the holiness of the fathers under the law was little else than hypocrisy and leads us away from that one unvarying rule of righteousness. It is very easy, however, to confute this error 
which proceeds on the supposition that Christ added to the law, whereas he only restored it to its integrity by maintaining and purifying it when obscured by the falsehood and defiled by the leaven of the Pharisees. Section 8. The next observation we would make is that there is always more in the requirements and prohibitions of the law than is expressed in words. This, however, must be understood so as not to convert it into a kind of lesbian code, and thus, by licentiously resting the scriptures, make them assume any meaning that we please. By taking this excessive liberty with scripture, its authority is lowered with some, and all hope of understanding it abandoned by others. We must, therefore, if possible, discover some path which may conduct us with direct and firm step to the will of God. We must consider, I say, how far interpretation can be permitted to go beyond the literal meaning of the words, still making it apparent that no appendix of human glosses is added to the divine law, but that the pure and genuine meaning of the lawgiver is faithfully exhibited. It is true that in almost all the commandments there are elliptical expressions, and that therefore any man would make himself ridiculous by attempting to restrict the spirit of the law to the strict letter of the words. It is plain that a sober interpretation of the law must go beyond these. But how far is doubtful unless some rule be adopted? The best rule, in my opinion, would be to be guided by the principle of the commandment, viz., to consider in the case of each what the purpose is for which it was given. For example, every commandment either requires or prohibits, and the nature of each is instantly discerned when we look to the principle of the commandment as its end. Thus, the end of the fifth commandment is to render honor to those on whom God bestows it. The sum of the commandment, therefore, is that it is right in itself and pleasing to God to honor those on whom he has conferred some distinction, that to despise and rebel against such persons is offensive to him. The principle of the first commandment is that God only is to be worshipped. The sum of the commandment, therefore, is that true piety, in other words, the worship of the deity, is acceptable and impiety is an abomination to him. So in each of the commandments we must first look to the matter of which it treats, and then consider its end until we discover what it properly is that the lawgiver declares to be pleasing or displeasing to him. Only we must reason from the precept to its contrary in this way. If this pleases God, its opposite displeases. If that displeases, its opposite pleases. If God commands this, he forbids the opposite. If he forbids that, he commands the opposite. Section 9. What is now touched on somewhat obscurely will become perfectly clear as we proceed and get accustomed to the exposition of the commandments. It is sufficient thus to have adverted to the subject, but perhaps our concluding statement will require to be briefly confirmed, as it might otherwise not be understood, or, though understood, might perhaps at the outset appear unsound. There is no need of proving that when good is ordered, the evil which is opposed to it is forbidden. This everyone admits. It will also be admitted without much difficulty that when evil is forbidden, its opposite is enjoined. Indeed, it is a common saying that censure of vice is commendation of virtue. We, however, demand somewhat more than is commonly understood by these expressions. When the particular virtue opposed to a particular vice is spoken of, all that is usually meant is abstinence from that vice. We maintain that it goes farther, and means opposite duties and positive acts. Hence the commandment, quote, Thou shalt not kill, unquote, the generality of men will merely consider as an injunction to abstain from all injury, and all wish to inflict injury. I hold that it moreover means that we are to aid our neighbor's life by every means in our power, and not to assert without giving my reason I prove it thus, God forbids us to injure or hurt a brother, because he would have his life to be dear and precious to us. And, therefore, when he so forbids, he at the same time demands all the offices of charity which can contribute to his preservation. Section 10. But why did God thus deliver his commandments, as it were, by halves, using elliptical expressions with a larger meaning than that actually expressed? Other reasons are given, but the following seems to me the best. As the flesh is always on the alert to extenuate the heinousness of sin, unless it is made, as it were, perceptible to the touch, and to cover it with specious pretexts, the Lord sets forth by way of example whatever is foulest and most iniquitous in each species of transgression, that the delivery of it might produce a shudder in the hearer, and impress his mind with a deeper abhorrence of sin. 
in forming an estimate of sins, we are often imposed upon by imagining that the more hidden, the less heinous they are. This delusion the Lord dispels by accustoming us to refer the whole multitude of sins to particular heads which admirably show how great a degree of heinousness there is in each. For example, wrath and hatred do not seem so very bad when they are designated by their own names, but when they are prohibited under the name of murder, we understand better how abominable they are in the sight of God, who puts them in the same class with that horrid crime. Influenced by his judgment, we accustom ourselves to judge more accurately of the heinousness of offenses which previously seemed trivial. Section 11 It will now be proper to consider what is meant by the division of the divine law into two tables. It will be judged by all men of sense from the formal manner in which these are sometimes mentioned, that it has not been done at random or without reason. Indeed, the reason is so obvious as not to allow us to remain in doubt with regard to it. God thus divided his law into two parts, containing a complete rule of righteousness that he might assign the first place to the duties of religion, which relate especially to his worship, and the second to the duties of charity which have respect to man. The first foundation of righteousness undoubtedly is the worship of God. When it is subverted, all the other parts of righteousness, like a building rent asunder and in ruins, are racked and scattered. What kind of righteousness do you call it, not to commit theft and rapine, if you, in the meantime, with impious sacrilege, rob God of his glory, are not to defile your body with fornication, if you profane his holy name with blasphemy, are not to take away the life of man, if you strive to cut off and destroy the remembrance of God? It is vain, therefore, to talk of righteousness apart from religion. Such righteousness has no more beauty than the trunk of a body deprived of its head. Nor is religion the principal part merely. It is the very soul by which the whole lives and breathes. Without the fear of God, men do not even observe justice and charity among themselves. We say, then, that the worship of God is the beginning and foundation of righteousness and that wherever it is wanting, any degree of equity, or continence, or temperance, existing among men themselves is empty and frivolous in the sight of God. We call it the source and soul of righteousness, inasmuch as men learn to live together temperately and without injury, when they revere God as the judge of right and wrong. In the first table, accordingly, he teaches us how to cultivate piety and the proper duties of religion in which his worship consists. In the second, he shows how, in the fear of his name, we are to conduct ourselves towards our fellow men. Hence, as related by the evangelists, Matthew 22, verse 37, and Luke 10, verse 27, our Savior summed up the whole law in two heads, viz., to love the Lord with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. You see how, of the two parts under which he comprehends the whole law, he devotes the one to God, and assigns the other to mankind. Section 12. But although the whole law is contained in two heads, yet in order to remove every pretext for excuse, the Lord has been pleased to deliver more fully and explicitly in Ten Commandments everything relating to his own honor, fear, and love, as well as everything relating to the charity which, for his sake, he enjoins us to have towards our fellow men. Nor is it an unprofitable study to consider the division of the commandments, provided we remember that it is one of those matters in which every man should have full freedom of judgment, and on account of which difference of opinion should not lead to contention. We are indeed under the necessity of making this observation, lest the division which we are to adopt should excite the surprise or derision of the reader as novel or of recent invention. There is no room for controversy as to the fact that the law is divided into ten heads, since this is repeatedly sanctioned by divine authority. The question, therefore, is not as to the number of the parts, but the method of dividing them. Those who adopt a division which gives three commandments to the first table, and throws the remaining seven into the second table, expunge the commandment concerning images from the list, or at least conceal it into the first, though there cannot be a doubt that it was distinctly set down by the Lord as a separate commandment. Whereas the tenth, which prohibits the coveting of what belongs to our neighbor, they absurdly break down into two. Moreover, it will soon appear that this method of dividing was unknown in a purer age. Others count four commandments in the first table as we do, but for the first set down the introductory promise without adding the precept. 
but because I must hold, unless I am convinced by clear evidence to the contrary, that the, quote, ten words, unquote, mentioned by Moses are ten commandments, and because I see that number arranged in most admirable order, I must, while I leave them to hold their own opinion, follow what appears to me better established, viz., that what they make to be the first commandment is of the nature of a preface to the whole law, that thereafter follow four commandments in the first table and six in the second, in the order in which they will here be reviewed. This division Origen adopts without discussion, as if it had been everywhere received in his day. It is also adopted by Augustine in his book addressed to Boniface, where, in enumerating the commandments, he follows this order, Let one God be religiously obeyed, let no idol be worshipped, let the name of God be not used in vain, while previously he had made separate mention of the typical commandment of the Sabbath. Elsewhere, indeed, he expresses approbation of the first division, but on two slight grounds, because by the number three, making the first table consist of three commandments, the mystery of the Trinity would be better manifested. Even here, however, he does not disguise his opinion that in other respects our division is more to his mind. Besides these, we are supported by the author of an unfinished work on Matthew. Josephus, no doubt, with the general consent of his age, assigns five commandments to each table. This, while repugnant to reason, inasmuch as it confounds the distinction between piety and charity, is also refuted by the authority of our Savior, who in Matthew places the command to honor parents in the list of those belonging to the second table. Matthew 19, verse 19. Let us now hear God speaking in his own words. First Commandment I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Section 13 Whether you take the former sentence as a part of the commandment, or read it separately, is to me a matter of indifference, provided you grant that it is a kind of preface to the whole law. In enacting laws, the first thing to be guarded against is their being forthwith abrogated by contempt. The Lord, therefore, takes care in the first place that this shall not happen to the law about to be delivered by introducing it with a triple sanction. He claims to himself power and authority to command that he may impress the chosen people with the necessity of obedience. He holds forth a promise of favor as a means of alluring them to the study of holiness and he reminds them of his kindness, that he may convict them of ingratitude if they fail to make a suitable return. By the name Lord are denoted power and lawful dominion. If all things are from him and by him consist, they ought in justice to bear reference to him, as Paul says, Romans 11, verse 36. This name, therefore, is in itself sufficient to bring us under the authority of the divine majesty for it were monstrous for us to wish to withdraw from the dominion of him out of whom we cannot even exist. Section 14 After showing that he has a right to command and to be obeyed, he next, in order not to seem to drag men by mere necessity, but to allure them, graciously declares that he is the God of the Church. For the mode of expression implies that there is a mutual relation included in the promise, quote, I will be their God, and they shall be my people, unquote. Jeremiah 31, verse 33. Hence, Christ infers the immortality of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from the fact that God had declared himself to be their God. Matthew 22, verse 52. It is, therefore, the same as if he had said, I have chosen you to myself as a people to whom I shall not only do good in the present life, but also bestow felicity in the life to come. The end contemplated in this is adverted to in the law in various passages. For when the Lord condescends in mercy to honor us so far as to admit us to partnership with his chosen people, he chooses us, as Moses says, quote, to be a holy people, unquote, quote, a peculiar people unto himself, unquote, to, quote, keep all his commandments, unquote. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, and 14, verse 2, and 26, verse 18. Hence the exhortation, quote, Ye shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy, unquote. Leviticus 19, verse 2. These two considerations form the ground of the remonstrance. Quote, a son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear, saith the Lord of hosts? Unquote. Malachi 1, verse 6. Section 15. Next follows a commemoration of his kindness, 
which ought to produce upon us an impression strong in proportion to the detestation in which ingratitude is held even among men. It is true indeed he was reminding Israel of a deliverance then recent, but one which, on account of its wondrous magnitude, was to be forever memorable to the remotest posterity. Moreover, it is most appropriate to the matter at hand. For the Lord intimates that they were delivered from miserable bondage, that they might learn to yield prompt submission and obedience to him as the author of their freedom. In like manner, to keep us to his true worship, he often describes himself by certain epithets which distinguish his sacred deity from all idols and fictitious gods. For, as I formerly observed, such is our proneness to vanity and presumption, that as soon as God is named, our minds, unable to guard against error, immediately fly off to some empty delusion. And applying a remedy to this disease, God distinguishes his divinity by certain titles, and thus confines us, as it were, within distinct boundaries, that we may not wander hither and thither, and feign some new deity for ourselves, abandoning the living God, and setting up an idol. For this reason, whenever the prophets would bring him properly before us, they invest and, as it were, surround him with those characters under which he had manifested himself to the people of Israel. When he is called the God of Abraham, or the God of Israel, when he is stationed in the temple of Jerusalem, between the cherubim, these, and similar modes of expression, do not confine him to one place or one people, but are used merely for the purpose of fixing our thoughts on that God who so manifested himself in the covenant which he made with Israel, as to make it unlawful, on any account, to deviate from the strict view there given of his character. Let it be understood, then, that mention is made of deliverance, in order to make the Jews submit with greater readiness to that God who justly claims them as his own. We again, instead of supposing that the matter has no reference to us, should reflect that the bondage of Israel in Egypt was a type of that spiritual bondage and the fetters of which we are all bound until the heavenly avenger delivers us by the power of his own arm and transports us into his free kingdom. Therefore, as in old times, when he would gather together the scattered Israelites to the worship of his name, he rescued them from the intolerable tyranny of Pharaoh. So all who profess him now are delivered from the fatal tyranny of the devil, of which that of Egypt was only a type. There is no man, therefore, whose mind ought not to be aroused to give heed to the law, which, as he is told, proceeded from the supreme king from him who, as he gave all their being, justly destines and directs them to himself as their proper end. There is no man, I say, who should not hasten to embrace the lawgiver, whose commands, he knows, he has been specially appointed to obey, from whose kindness he anticipates an abundance of all good, and even a blessed immortality, and to whose wondrous power and mercy he is indebted for deliverance from the jaws of death. Section 16 the authority of the law being founded and established, God delivers his first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. The purport of this commandment is that the Lord will have himself alone to be exalted in his people, and claims the entire possession of them as his own. That it may be so, he orders us to abstain from ungodliness and superstition of every kind, by which the glory of his divinity is diminished or obscured and for the same reason he requires us to worship and adore him with truly pious zeal. The simple terms used obviously amount to this. For saying we cannot have God without embracing everything which belongs to him, the prohibition against having strange gods means that nothing which belongs to him is to be transferred to any other. The duties which we owe to God are innumerable, but they seem to admit of being not improperly reduced to four heads. Adoration, with its accessory spiritual submission of conscience, trust, invocation, thanksgiving. By adoration, I mean the veneration and worship which we render to him when we do homage to his majesty, and hence I make part of it to consist in bringing our consciences into subjection to his law. Trust is secure resting in him under a recognition of his perfections, when, ascribing to him all power, wisdom, justice, goodness and truth, we consider ourselves happy in having been brought into intercourse with him. Invocation may be denied the betaking of ourselves to his promised aid as the only resource in every case of need. Thanksgiving is the gratitude which ascribes to him the praise of all our blessings. As the Lord does not allow these to be derived from any other quarter, so he demands that they shall be referred entirely to himself. 
it is not enough to refrain from other gods. We must at the same time devote ourselves wholly to him, not acting like certain impious despisers who regard it as the shortest method to hold all religious observance in derision. But here precedence must be given to true religion, which will direct our minds to the living God. When duly imbued with the knowledge of Him, the whole aim of our lives will be to revere, fear, and worship His majesty, to enjoy a share in His blessings, to have recourse to Him in every difficulty, to acknowledge, laud, and celebrate the magnificence of His works, to make Him, as it were, the sole aim of all our actions. Next, we must beware of superstition by which our minds are turned aside from the true God and carried to and fro after a multiplicity of gods. Therefore, if we are contented with one God, let us call to mind what was formerly observed, that all fictitious gods are to be driven far away, and that the worship which he claims for himself is not to be mutilated. Not a particle of his glory is to be withheld. Everything belonging to him must be reserved to him entire. The words, quote, before me, unquote, go to increase the indignity, God being provoked to jealousy whenever we substitute our fictions in his stead, just as an unfaithful wife stings her husband's heart more deeply when her adultery is committed openly before his eyes. Therefore, God, having by his present power and grace declared that he had respect to the people whom he had chosen, now, in order to deter them from the wickedness of revolt, warns them that they cannot adopt strange gods without his being witness and spectator of the sacrilege. To the audacity of so doing is added the very great impiety of supposing that they can mock the eye of God with their evasions. Far from this, the Lord proclaims that everything which we design, plan, or execute lies open to his sight. Our conscience must, therefore, keep aloof from the most distant thought of revolt if we would have our worship approved by the Lord. The glory of his Godhead must be maintained entire and incorrupt, not merely by external profession, but as under his eye, which penetrates the inmost recesses of his heart. Second Commandment Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. Section 17. As in the first commandment, the Lord declares that he is one, and that besides him no gods must be either worshipped or imagined. So he here more plainly declares what his nature is and what the kind of worship with which he is to be honored, in order that we may not presume to form any carnal idea of him. The purport of the commandment, therefore, is that he will not have his legitimate worship profaned by superstitious rites. Wherefore, in general, he calls us entirely away from the carnal, frivolous observances which our stupid minds are wont to devise after forming some gross idea of the divine nature, while, at the same time, he instructs us in the worship which is legitimate, namely, spiritual worship of his own appointment. The grossest vice here prohibited is external idolatry. This commandment consists of two parts. The former curbs the licentious daring which would subject the incomprehensible God to our senses, or represent him under any visible shape. The latter forbids the worship of images on any religious ground. There is, moreover, a brief enumeration of all the forms by which the deity was usually represented by heathen and superstitious nations. By, quote, anything which is in heaven above, unquote, is meant the sun, the moon, and the stars, perhaps also birds, as in Deuteronomy, where the meaning is explained, there is mention of birds as well as stars. Deuteronomy 4, verse 15. I would not have made this observation had I not seen that some absurdly apply it to the angels. The other particulars I pass as requiring no explanation. We have already shown clearly enough, Book 1, Chapter 11 and 12, that every visible shape of deity which man devises is diametrically opposed to the divine nature, and therefore that the moment idols appear true religion is corrupted and adulterated. Section 18. The threatening subjoined ought to have no little effect in shaking off our lethargy. It is in the following terms. I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me, and keep my commandments. The meaning here is the same as if he had said that our duty is to cleave to him alone. 
to induce us to this, he proclaims his authority, which he will not permit to be impaired or despised with impunity. It is true, the word used is El, which means God. But as it is derived from a word meaning strength, I have had no hesitation in order to express the sense more fully, so to render it as inserted on the margin. Secondly, he calls himself jealous because he cannot bear a partner. Thirdly, he declares that he will vindicate his majesty and glory if any transfer it either to the creatures or to graven images, and that not by simple punishment of brief duration, but one extending to the third and fourth generation of such as imitate the impiety of their progenitors. In like manner, he declares his constant mercy and kindness to the remote posterity of those who love him and keep his law. The Lord very frequently addresses us in the character of a husband, the union by which he connects us with himself when he receives us into the bosom of the church having some resemblance to that of holy wedlock because founded on mutual faith. As he performs all the offices of a true and faithful husband, so he stipulates for love and conjugal chastity from us, that is, that we do not prostitute our souls to Satan to be defiled with foul carnal lusts. Hence, when he rebukes the Jews for their apostasy, he claims that they have cast off chastity and polluted themselves with adultery. Therefore, as the purer and chaster the husband is, the more grievously he is offended when he sees his wife inclining to a rival. So the Lord, who hath betrothed us to himself in truth, declares that he burns with the hottest jealousy whenever, neglecting the purity of his holy marriage, we defile ourselves with abominable lusts, and especially when the worship of his deity, which ought to have been most carefully kept unimpaired, is transferred to another, or adulterated with some superstition. Since, in this way, we not only violate our plighted troth, but defile the nuptial couch by giving access to adulterers. Section 19 In the threatening, we must attend to what is meant when God declares that he will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. It seems inconsistent with the equity of the divine procedure to punish the innocent for another's fault. And the Lord himself declares that, quote, The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, unquote. Ezekiel 18, verse 20. But still we meet more than once with a declaration as to the postponing of the punishment of the sins of fathers to future generations. Thus, Moses repeatedly addresses the Lord as, quote, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation, unquote. Numbers 14, verse 18. In like manner, Jeremiah, quote, Thou showest loving kindness unto thousands, and recompensest the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them, unquote. Jeremiah 32, verse 18. Some, feeling sadly perplexed how to solve this difficulty, think it is to be understood of temporal punishments only, which it is said sons may properly bear for the sins of their parents, because they are often inflicted for their own safety. This is indeed true, for Isaiah declared to Hezekiah that his children should be stripped of the kingdom, and carried away into captivity for a sin which he had committed, Isaiah 39, verse 7 and the households of Pharaoh and Abimelech were made to suffer for an injury done to Abraham, Genesis 12, verse 17, and 20, verses 3 through 18. But the attempt to solve the question in this way is an evasion rather than a true interpretation, for the punishment denounced here and in similar passages is too great to be confined within the limits of the present life. We must therefore understand it to mean that a curse from the Lord righteously falls not only on the head of the guilty individual, but also on all his lineage. When it has fallen, what can be anticipated but that the Father, being deprived of the Spirit of God, will live most flagitiously, that the Son, being in like manner forsaken of the Lord because of his Father's iniquity, will follow the same road to destruction, and to be followed in his turn by succeeding generations, forming a seed of evildoers. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 450 3730, 
by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, AB, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list, so once you've set out your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and text, etc. SWRB makes available on the web, as well as at times to our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full contents of the message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26 3 states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.